Stay tuned for Captain Tracy Began of the Living Beyond Pain podcast, produced by the Defense Health Agency. Welcome to the Living Beyond Pain podcast. Today's episode is going to focus on sleep and the impact that it has on how we experience our pain. Joining us today is Dr. John Peachy, who is a health psychologist working at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. Welcome to the show, Dr. Peachy. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So sleep and chronic pain really go hand in hand. And I'd like you to explain to our listeners the impact that sleep can have on chronic pain. Certainly. They're what we call a bi-directional relationship, which is a fancy way of saying that pain messes with your sleep and sleep can mess with your pain. More complicated than that. There's a number of things that explain the relationship between these two. First, uh, when people are sleep deprived, that is when people get less sleep than they should, they typically report higher levels of pain. And you can actually do an experiment where you keep people awake and they will report more pain the next day that to, in support of that. There's also this connection between pain and inflammation. And specifically, there are certain foods which increase inflammation in our body. And by the way, when we don't get enough sleep, we crave more of those kind of foods, those junk foods. So in a roundabout way, that can cause our pain to increase. Additionally, we gain more weight when we're not getting good quality sleep. And the more weight we have to carry around, typically the worse our pain gets. And it also goes the other direction too, though. If I have problems with pain, I'm more likely to have disruptions in my sleep. Um, if I have problems with pain, I'm more likely to be less active overall because of the pain. But the less active I am, the worse my sleep is going to be. So I could go on and on and on about this bi-directional relationship between the two. But basically, if you have problems with sleep, you'll be at risk for more pain problems. And if you have pain problems, you're probably going to have sleep problems. <laughs> so in other words, if we want people to get better, we got to fix them both at the same time. So the relationship between sleep and pain really sounds like a vicious cycle. In your work with veterans, what's been your experience of their view of sleep and their need for sleep? It's funny because I've been on both sides of this. I mean, I worked, I've worked for the last five years or so with active duty. And then prior to that, I was working with veterans. And, and when I was, when I was in the VA hospital, I worked with a lot of people who had sleep difficulties. And, and the, the common theme there was that they had felt that the military had done an excellent job teaching them how to survive on little to no sleep, uh, but they never really untrained that. <laughs> that is to say, uh, that did them a lot of good. And in some ways, it was it was adaptive and helpful for them to learn how to survive on little to no sleep. Uh, because, you know, in a combat situation, that you don't really have any control over that. Uh, but once people get out of the military, they, as you know, as anyone listening might know, they don't want to stick around necessarily and, and go through some treatment for sleep problems. They just want to go home. So at any rate, there's just a pattern, I think, generally within the military population of people who've sort of learned to sleep with one eye open, uh, as I like to call it, uh, because that was helpful for them. But now that they're in the civilian world, that's not so necessary. Uh, but that's hard to unlearn because if your brain thinks, I got to keep one eye open to, to stay safe it's not gonna to wanna to give that up. Common problem, but relatively doable to, to get rid of it. That's something I also see in my patients. There's almost this sense of pride of, I can function on three hours of sleep, or I only need four mm. hours of sleep and I'll be fine. But long-term, that's not really healthy to maintain. So can you tell our listeners, what would be some good strategies or interventions that they could implement to kind of interrupt that cycle or even just shift it a little bit. 
Well, I think one of the key concepts of chronic pain management is that we need to move a little bit every day. And so typically when people increase their physical activity, not only can that in the long run help with pain, but that also typically increases the quality of our sleep or the depth of our sleep. So being physically active, even if that just means walking around the block, it goes a long way to helping both of these things pretty directly. So movement actually increases our ability to sleep. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, but more precisely, when we do physical activity or exercise, our body gets these little tiny tears in our muscles, which they have to repair themselves at night. And our body repairs itself with growth hormone. And, and so in other words, if we get some physical activity, our body feels this strong desire to get into deep sleep, which is where this growth hormone is created and released in our body, which is all a fancy way of saying the more physically active we are, the more sleep we need because our body needs to repair itself. So Dr. Peachy, if we just Google sleep, some of the first things that pop up are circadian rhythm and sleep drive. Can you help break those concepts down for our listeners? Sure. So I think there's, there's two main systems in your body which control your sleep. And you can kind of think of them as like yin and yang a bit. And one of these systems, uh, we can call it the sleep drive. And one of these systems we would call the wake drive. So the sleep drive is the thing that makes us feel sleepy. And simply put, the longer we're awake, the sleepier we feel. And then uh, when we go to sleep at night, our body cleans out this sleepy chemical from our brain and helps us feel better the next day. The other system, the wake drive, sometimes that's called the circadian rhythm, but it's basically this internal clock that tells us when it's time to be awake. And most of us want to be awake when the sun's up, although some people are true night owls or, or morning larks. So w when you're thinking about a sleep problem uh, someone may be having, you have to think about both, are they sleeping at the right time for their body, but you also have to think about do they have enough drive to sleep? Like someone who's napping all day long is probably going to have a hard time sleeping at night because there's not going to be much of a drive to go to sleep. And that's something that my patients tell me quite frequently is when they have a pain flare up, they really feel very fatigued and feel like they need to rest. And they're equating resting with sleeping or napping during the day. Uh, and that really takes away from that sleep drive. Yeah, you're, you're touching on a really important point, actually, for me. That, and that is that there's, there's an important distinction between sleepiness and tiredness. So Sleepiness is like I can hardly keep my eyes open. If I had a decent bed, I'd probably go to sleep pretty quickly. Tiredness is, means something different medically. And, and what I mean by that is, is physical fatigue or mental fatigue. So if I worked out really hard at the gym, when, um, when I'm done, I'm probably going to feel tired but not necessarily sleepy. Um, or if I took a really hard test, again, I might be sort of mentally wiped out but, again, not ready for bed. So... A lot of folks struggle with this and, or misunderstand this, and they think, well, I'm tired, so therefore I should go take a nap. And that's actually not at all what they need, and it potentially could be causing problems later that night. So I think that's kind of an important distinction for, for folks to make. I also wanted to ask your opinion, and, and if you could share with our listeners, what are some other factors that could impact sleep and the quality of sleep? especially for those folks that are experiencing chronic pain. I like to say that, that sleep is a barometer for our overall health, which, which means if, if we're having medical problems in, in, any way, in any area, we're probably going to have some sleep problems. 
our sleep is impacted by a lot of factors. Our movement, as we've talked about, our medical health as well. There's also this social, some social and cultural factors related to our sleep. For example, whether people share beds with their other family members. One of the things with regard to chronic pain specifically is that it's really common to, for folks to start to feel isolated from other people. And as a result, they end up, you know, staying up later um, because it doesn't really matter if, you know, especially if they're not working because of the pain condition in part. So the kind of easy out answer is basically everything can, can be a factor that influences our sleep. But a big one separate from those two systems I was talking about earlier is also our stress system. So if I'm worrying about something or just even thinking about what I need to do tomorrow, that will overpower my sleep drive potentially and my wake drive. So the list truly goes on and on. Well, and something that I often hear is I have insomnia and I, I lay awake at night and I worry or I, I can't fall asleep or I fall asleep and then I wake up, you know, a half hour later, an hour later. So I must have insomnia. Are there some other medical conditions that could be going on with someone other than insomnia? Certainly. One of the more common sleep conditions separate from insomnia is sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea, which coincidentally is more common in, in veteran and military populations. So what, what that is, is some people are snoring at night and then they end up essentially holding their breath. It's not intentional, but they're, they're trying to breathe and, and their airway has just closed down on itself so that no air is getting through. So if you hear your partner, your bed partner, for example, uh, snoring and snorting and holding their breath at night, there's a good chance that that this may be happening. And certainly you would want to talk to your doctor about that in more detail. Separate from sleep apnea, another common interfering sleep problem is some folks have nightmares, which interfere with quality of their sleep. There's more benign things that like sleepwalking, which are common, but they're not really a problem that we worry about much in the clinical area. I think the last one I would mention is that some people, we were talking earlier about the internal clock in our body, their circadian rhythm. Some people are just naturally, they don't want to sleep during the night. They, their bodies want to sleep during the daytime or at times that are not sort of culturally normal. This is a really common thing that I actually see pretty frequently and often can contribute to insomnia sort of separately. If our listeners are experiencing some of these things and maybe their sleep partners are saying, hey, you're snoring, you're holding their breath, we really want to encourage them to go and see their primary care doctor and see if a a referral to a sleep clinic would be appropriate and making sure that they're really being treated for those other conditions that could be contributing to sleep difficulties. Certainly. Now, what are some helpful tips for our listeners to improve their quality of sleep? Lots of ideas come to mind, but first of all, a normal, healthy, perfect sleeper is going to naturally wake up every 90 minutes, roughly, all night long. So we all do this. That is to say, waking up at night isn't really a problem, but remembering that you wake up at night and staying awake for a period of time is because, you know, perfect, healthy sleepers would wake up and and roll over and just go right back to sleep. So... What you're doing during that period of time is kind of critical. And what a lot of people do, which is not a very good idea, is uh, they check the time in the middle of the night. And the problem with that is a couple things. Firstly, it's impossible to to avoid doing math when you look at the clock. You're going to go, how long has it been and how long do I have left? And math wakes up the brain, certainly. And then if it's bad news, that wakes up the brain more. So 
One recommendation is set your alarm clock and put it out of reach if it's your phone or if it's a bedside alarm, uh, just push it away. And then if you wake up at night, it doesn't matter what time it is. And you say that's what you say to yourself. You say, it's brain, it doesn't matter. The alarm will tell me when it's time to wake up. Um, and what you find if you can stop checking the time, usually after about a week or so, is people stop realizing that they're waking up at night because they're not, as a result, getting alerted by looking at the time. The other thing I would recommend, kind of more towards the beginning of the night, is many people have this problem where it's difficult to turn off their mind. Their, their mind is racing at night when they get in bed. And it might be about real legitimate problems or it might be about, you know, what am I going to do for lunch tomorrow? But nonetheless, it's just really hard to turn off the mind in bed. A lot of people have this problem. And one of the techniques that works really well is to say, sort of make a deal with yourself. You go, okay, brain, look, I don't want to be thinking about these things all day long. I certainly don't want to be thinking about these things in bed at night. So since I can't make you just stop, <laughs> I'll make you a deal. We will worry or think about these concerns earlier in the evening, maybe at 5 p.m., and I will actually schedule into my day 15 minutes to sit and think about whatever these concerns might be. As silly as that sounds, what happens if you follow through on that for a few days is your brain actually starts to believe you and it starts to quiet down when you get in bed and quiet down in the day, kind of knowing that it'll have its time to air the dirty laundry and think about all these problems and so forth. I wouldn't do this right before bed, <laughs> but otherwise you can pretty much do it whenever you want. And it's just one of those things that I've had endless people tell me has, has helped them to quiet their minds at night. Well, and that brings up a really good point about not doing it right before bed or even in bed, because we really want to associate bed with sleeping. And if we're laying in bed and we're awake and we're worrying, that's what we're going to associate with when we go to bed. And we really want to retrain our brains to think about and to associate our bed with sleeping. De definitely. And, and likewise, just to kind of add on to that, you don't want to jump in bed and then relax and unwind in bed while you're waiting to get sleepy. You want to stay out of bed and relax and unwind and only get in when you think it's coming soon. So that's that's why it's really critical to have at least 30 minutes before you get in bed of just turning off the screens, putting the lights down low, and doing something relaxing. Whatever that is for you, whether it's playing guitar or knitting or or meditating, doesn't matter. As long as people do that, usually they'll become more aware of how sleepy they actually are. And I've got to say, that's one thing that I'm guilty of. Sometimes I'll just, you know, pop into bed and I'm scrolling through social media or playing a mind-numbing game just to shut my mind off. And like you said, putting that phone away and not even having it near your bed can really be helpful in breaking that habit. I also wanted to ask you, because a number of my patients talk about they can't really sleep in their bed, and so they, they sleep in a chair or on the couch. Is that something that is recommended, or what would you say to our audience uh, members that really have a difficult time finding a comfortable position so they can't sleep in their bed? That touches on a couple subjects. So the first thing that you're touching on is what we call conditioned arousal. And basically, this uh, how I like to think about it is that, you know, I, ideally our brains think bed equals sleep. But if we have poor sleep or we don't sleep in bed over many weeks or months or years, over time our brain will come to learn bed equals wakefulness or, or stress or something else. And so what a lot of people 
tell me is that they'll be sitting on the couch just relaxing before bed and starting to do that head nod thing and they go okay it's time for me for me to go to sleep and they get in bed and suddenly they're wide awake and that's because their brain's saying oh here we go again time to see how long it takes to sleep tonight so if we want to prevent that from happening or if we want to fix that if it's already happening we do have some general guidelines where we say number one don't get in bed until you're about to fall asleep number two don't stay in bed if you're not sleeping because you're just making it worse And three, just use your bed for sleep. You don't want to hang out there and watch TV there and that, uh, or, or, or talk about finances or whatever it might be. And that kind of gets at the other point that you're touching on, which is with chronic pain specifically. When folks are, uh, especially in a pain flare up and in a state where they're just trying to take it easy as much as possible and relax and not move too much, typically they end up sitting on a recliner, sitting on the couch. And then as the hours go by, it sudden, might suddenly become night. And then, well, what the heck, I'll fall asleep here. I'm already comfortable. But from what we were just talking about a moment ago, it's really not a good idea to have your mind thinking you have multiple sleeping places. So I kind of think when people say, I really truly for pain reasons cannot sleep anywhere, but say in my recliner, I'm flexible. I would say to that, that's okay. As long as you don't sit in that recliner all day long and watch TV and do other things there. If all you do is sleep in that recliner and you don't sleep anywhere else, whatever works. (laughs) Yeah, I even would encourage my patients to, okay, if that's your recliner, bring it in your bedroom. Yeah. And, and you know, if if that's possible, so that you're associating that recliner and that space with sleeping. Just like you said, we're retraining our brain. We're trying to teach our brain that this is the place we sleep. This is the space we sleep in. And these are the times we're going to bed. You know, having that routine so that our body starts to adjust to it. And just like you had said a moment ago, it takes time. And I know a number of my patients get frustrated at first because they say, well, I'm trying this, but it didn't work this week. And so we really just want to encourage our listeners to, to take that time to be consistent and, and let it happen over time. Now, I'm not saying, you know, if you're, if you're doing everything that your primary care provider or your behavioral health provider is requesting of you as far as those sleep regimens and um, sleep restriction schedules, if you're doing a cognitive behavior intervention for insomnia, we really want to make sure that something else is going on. We, we want to address that. But for those patients, given that time, Give it a chance to work. It's not just going to happen overnight. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) For our listeners that are experiencing insomnia, is there any treatment that they can seek out that is helpful in treating insomnia? There's several treatment options, but the treatment of choice is is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI. And actually, I think about two or three years ago, there was a major physician organization in the United States which said, this should be our first-line intervention moving forward. We should not be trying medications first, but we should be trying cognitive behavioral therapy and then and only then if it fails should we then reconsider something like a medicine strongly supported, lots of research. And and essentially how I think about it is a lot of people, a lot of your listeners have probably heard of or may have heard of sleep hygiene. And when they hear about, oh, someone's going to help you sleep better, they go, you know what, I've already heard about the sleep hygiene thing and it doesn't work for me. Getting to the point you were saying a moment ago, 
it's a good to think about these things is like it's about finding the right recipe. And just because you tried these ingredients in the past and it didn't turn out right for you doesn't mean they're all bad ingredients. Uh, it just maybe wasn't the right recipe for you. So with regard to sleep specifically, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is looking at changing our behaviors and also changing our thinking about our sleep and the sleep environment and how much sleep we need and so on and so forth in order to, to help people sleep better. And so a lot of this is education. Sleep hygiene does make up a portion of it, but it's important for people to understand that sleep hygiene on its own isn't going to treat an insomnia problem. It's more preventative, kind of like flossing your teeth in dental hygiene. It's not going to fix a cavity, but it might prevent you from getting one in the first place. So what I like to do is give a lot of education about how your sleep systems work so that it becomes kind of more obvious about what messes it up and, and what they should avoid doing. And then finally, what we do is, as we were talking about earlier, we work hard to help retrain people's brains so that when you get in bed, your brain says, it's time for me to go to sleep. And that's something that I really find with my active duty patients and the veterans that I've worked with. They understand training and they've been able to be successful in learning new skills. So if we can frame it that way to say, I've been successful in the past in learning these new skills. So maybe I don't have them right now, but I can learn them. And so really encouraging them that they've been successful learning new skills in the past, and this is just a new skill set that they're gonna be learning, and really talking about the benefits of if they can learn these and be successful, what that would mean for them in the long term. Because when we talk about our sleep, it really does impact, like you said, it's that vicious cycle. It impacts our emotions. It impacts the way we function. It impacts our, our mental focus and mental clarity. You know, oftentimes I know when I don't get a good night's sleep, I am not very sharp the next morning and I'm usually pretty grumpy. So I, I know just with that factor. And then if you add in you're experiencing a pain flare up and you don't have sleep, that really does impact how we function and how other people relate to us. So again, that cycle of feeling isolated, socially isolated, because people don't want to be around us if we're grumpy. And frankly, I don't like being around people when I'm in pain. I've had some different conditions where I've had to recover and people would treat me like, you know, I'm going to break or that I needed to keep it keep it easy. And so I found that that vicious cycle, again, of that pain and that sleep really just feed into each other. So using those behaviors and those strategies and seeking out that CBTI, the cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, if insomnia is what's going on, can really be helpful in breaking that. When we work on your sleep and we work on your pain simultaneously, that's going to give you the best chance for success. If we ignore one of those while working on the other one, the other one we're ignoring is probably going to keep the problem going, and it won't really get much better. Well, Dr. Peachy, I just really appreciate the time that you've taken with us today to, to discuss the impact of sleep on our pain. For our listeners, there's some great resources below in our show notes. There's some great apps. The CBTI coach um, can really be helpful in tracking your sleep. And so like we talked about, being intentional about observing what are our sleep patterns and how they're impacting us. And there's some additional resources that can be helpful in tracking our moods and seeing, you know, what the relationship is between our moods and, and how we sleep can be helpful. So again, Dr. Peachy, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? 
if you let your body sleep when it wants to, it will sleep about eight hours a day, which in other words is about a third of our lives. If that doesn't convince you that your sleep isn't important, I don't know what will. Sweet dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you again for joining us. For our listeners, please join us again for our next episode of Living Beyond Pain, where we provide you with practical tools to help you limit and reduce the intensity, the frequency, and the duration of your pain flare-ups. Until next time, be well. Join us on A Better Night's Sleep, the podcast that provides sleep tips, information on sleep disorders, and evidence-based treatment. We'll talk with leading experts in sleep and sleep disorders. Although we made this for the military community, Everyone can use a better night's sleep.